On Wednesday 22nd of March 2023, Wellington College invited its sixth form politics students, along with students from local schools, to participate in a conference on topics surrounding contemporary challenges in global politics. The conference was a tremendous success, with renowned speakers offering contributions on topics ranging from macro-geopolitics and the transition from a unipolar to a multipolar world, to global governance and the quality of peace after negotiated settlements. In this podcast, you'll hear clips from the speakers, followed by an interview with each speaker conducted by Paul Dunn, Head of Politics at Wellington College, which follows up on their chosen topics to provide further insight and context. We also welcomed Dr Vlad Mikhenenko virtually to give a Q&A session on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. For reasons of time, his Q&A and follow-up interview are available as a separate podcast. Some of you are doing IB Global Politics, some of you are doing A-Level Global Politics option. Um, whichever is the case for you. Um, if you have a look through the programme, um, we've got an exciting talk from Marshall, uh, publisher of, uh, sorry, author of Prisoners of Geography, Harold Geography, and a book coming out from Astro Politics in April. Very much looking forward to that. Um, we're going to touch on issues of peace and conflict. So that's Unit 4, Ivy Global Politics. We're going to talk about negotiated settlements. Our next talk, our speaker will be on vaccines. The idea is to get you to consider different stakeholders uh, who were involved during the COVID pandemic. So states, pharmaceutical companies, local communities, such like. We'll have a break. Uh, and then we'll have Dr. Mikhenko talking about his um, experience with the Russian-Ukraine conflict. Uh, he's of Ukrainian heritage. He'll join us online. Finally, we will be discussing uh, climate change and sustainability with Ms. Romero, um, who is in charge of our sustainability initiatives at Wellington College. Um, so that will lead to the M3 development. Um, she's been thoroughly involved in mock COPs to correspond with what's happening on the international level. Um, so there is plenty for you to take aboard. To begin the conference, Anthony Coates, teacher of politics and global politics at Wellington College, introduced the event, the venue and the speakers to all attending. Held in the majestic Great School, students were challenged on various issues and given a greater understanding of topics that contribute towards the academic curriculum and have a profound bearing on the immediate future of the world. The first talk of the day was presented by Tim Marshall, a British journalist and an author and broadcaster specialising in foreign affairs and international diplomacy. He has previously worked for LBC and the BBC, as well as being the diplomacy editor and foreign affairs editor for Sky News. He is also the author of Prisoners of Geography, a New York Times bestseller and a Sunday Times number one bestseller, which discusses the impact geography can have on international affairs. For this conference, he spoke to students on macro geopolitics, in particular concerning Russia and Ukraine, China and the USA, and astropolitics. My generation grew up in that world, bipolar world, Quite easy to understand. Two big blocks. Nearly everything that happened on a global scale within that happened within that framework. I've put uh, 89, that was the uh, fall of communism, the Berlin Wall. It really was a much easier time to understand the world. There was the uh, non aligned movement, but mostly if you had a civil war somewhere, Behind it, you would find the two superpowers. Unipolar world, the French called it the hyperpuissance, the hyperpower of the United States. And that's because they were the last power standing. 2008, I've put as the end because that's the financial crash. They withdrew into themselves, they began to take their eye off the ball, all sorts of things flow from that. We're now in the multipolar world, and one of the reasons why it's so hard to understand it is because it's multipolar. There isn't this uh, two great power blocks. And within that, the Americans are busy doing other things. They were 20 years. They took their eye off the ball because of Iraq and Afghanistan. Lots of countries take advantage. For example, Turkey tries to play both sides, the Saudis, play all sides against each other, and I don't blame them. But without the discipline, for better or worse, of a bipolar world, everybody's playing. And so it's harder to understand why 
that country supports that country, but hang on a minute, they're also supporting that country even though that country is an enemy of that. It gets very messy, and the reason is uh, multipolar world. I personally believe we're heading very slowly back to a bipolar world, a form of bipolar world. Probably aware, I think it was Mark Twain, history does not rhyme, it doesn't uh, repeat itself, but it rhymes. It, it looks like it used to, but there are differences. I've been arguing for 10 years, we're in a cold war with Russia. Don't think you can argue against that now. Been arguing for five years, we are moving towards a form of cold war and bipolar world. China and USA. It'll be different to the previous one, but in broad brush terms, it's a useful template for understanding it. After his talk, Tim Marshall spoke to Paul Dunn. Well, good morning. I'm speaking to Tim Marshall, um, world-renowned global author of Prisoners of Geography and later this year, a book on astropolitics, which is coming out in April. Uh, And Tim has just spoken at our Global Politics Conference. So I'm just following up to ask a few questions on his presentation. So good morning, Tim. Welcome. And it's great to have you here. And thanks for coming in. Thanks for the invitation. It was was fun and it was great. The, The questions were, you know, showed how engaged and knowledgeable the, the students are. Brilliant. Um, if I can start with it, one of the things that I really uh, found interesting from the, from the talk that you gave was about water and mentioning, uh, mentioning water and water shortages in particular. Um, and it's something that we don't really, we wouldn't really consider in global politics mm. per se as a mainly geographic factor. But how would you rank the what would you consider to be the most dangerous factors for geopolitics over the next maybe five, ten years? Uh, well, that's, that's really difficult, ranking them. I mean, probably uh, the flashpoints, the classic flashpoints are still the highest, which, which is the South China Sea, India-Pakistan, where something could blow up, um, Russia-Ukraine, obviously, which which has the potential to to drag more people in. I don't think it will. But once you move past those obvious ones, and the, the one about climate change, although that's not a sort of an immediate um, uh, emergency when it comes to international relations, I think you're talking um, instability from. Cl- climate change, poverty and and conflict-induced population movements, which then destabilise other areas. Uh, I mean, Libya was already destabilised, but that's exacerbated hugely by the movement of peoples. Uh, Tunisia is is, uh, being destabilised by that and by some rather intemperate language from the political class there. And then you've also got to put on the, the potential for water wars, there was a book written in the 70s called Water Wars. And ever since then, people have been waiting for one. And there was nearly one between Turkey and Syria, nearly one between Turkey and Iraq. Uh, there's been lots of tensions. But there's a new one now between Ethiopia and Egypt. But I just think if you look at the modelling of the climate change specialists, you can see that, that water scarcity is going to be an issue. And given that water is life... Uh, there's the potential for it to be ex- existential uh, issues, and when it gets to existential issues, that's when people are prepared to fight. Yeah, it's, it's it reminded me to begin with of something we're looking at in U.S. politics in the A-level side, which was the damming of Colorado River in mm. the 1920s, and, and the fact that America, in the early parts of the 20th century, went through this process and actually managed to avoid conflict within its own country over water. What, what's the solution to mm. the water problem? It, it's sharing and trust. But, you know, that, that's, that's um, always been an issue. Um, Reagan said, trust but verify. And it's a lot easier to do it uh, if it's within one country. Now, obviously, the United States is, is a, a federal country, but you're still talking about one country with one national government as well as the regional governments. So you can do it. Spain is another example. Spain is a, is a country of regions, and they have serious water problems, and they, there are tensions between the Spanish regions over water, but it's still one country. The problem comes when, if you're talking about, the, for example, the Egypt-Ethiopia uh, situation, because the Blue Nile, which starts in Ethiopia, so in times of great stress, Ethiopia can say, we're a sovereign nation, this water starts here, it's our water, and they've dammed it, 
with the Grand Ethiopian uh, Renaissance Dam. It then flows through Sudan, and then it flows into Egypt. And the Ethiopians have guaranteed a certain amount of water every year will be given to Egypt. And Egypt has to uh, trust that. Uh, and written treaties, guarantees. That, and that would potentially solve the tensions. But the tensions would arise again if there was a massive water shortage. Because at that point, the Egyptians are going to start asking, are they going to let the water flow into Sudan and onto here? So uh, it, it becomes more, much more difficult when, when you're dealing with cross-border water issues. Are we... Are we moving then? I mean, it's a really interesting concept you mentioned at the end of the talk, but it's never been a better time to be alive. But it's something that we kind of we need to stress to people who yeah. are studying politics at this time. Are we moving into a more trustful or a more distrustful world? I'm afraid we're moving into a more distrustful world. We go, you know, we go through periods of great complexity and difficulty, and we've we've gone into one. Um, the bipolar Cold War was a dangerous time, but it was almost, in looking back, relatively stable and easier to understand. With a multipolar world, with, with lots of people playing um, countries off against each other, it becomes difficult and dangerous. And also, the move towards democracy that happened both during the Cold War and then in the, the first decade after it, where lots of new democracies sprang up, Czech Republic, well, Czechoslovakia, and then the Czech Republic and Slovakia, uh, for example, or Armenia. I'm afraid that has dried up. And, and at the moment, we're moving towards a more autocratic world. And it's got a block already, uh, BLOC. <laughs> you know, China, Russia as its junior partner, other autocratic countries such as Iran and Eritrea and Nicaragua forming a sort of autocratic block to try to punch their way in the world. And then you've got the democracies which are, are trying to hold together. Uh, but at the moment, I don't think you could really argue that, that most of the world is in the democratic block. And that's going to be one of the stories of the 21st century. How does that play out? Well, does economic success in that block push it closer to democracy? Yeah, that's a great question because up until 10 years ago, it was a given that democracy was the way ahead for economic prosperity. And the Chinese have driven a coach and horses through that because it's never happened before, really, in the modern age. And what the Chinese have done is lift a minimum of 400 million people out of poverty and into a middle-class lifestyle as it, as it would be understood in the West. And they've done it with a dictatorship, an autocratic system. So, you know, that doesn't hold anymore. And, and the, 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 the intellectual knock-on effect of that around the world, I think, is huge. You know, countries are saying, some leaders are saying, we don't need to have democracy to be a successful, prosperous country. So that, that is a... Uh, a challenge to the democracies and part of the challenge is that they have to hold by their values and keep having successful economies uh, which is a challenge which I hope they'll rise to meet Excellent um, We could talk all day I certainly could um, it's now, <laughs> Me too There's ever been a more interesting time to be a student of global politics and so thank you Tim for coming in today we really appreciate your time and your talk and uh, hopefully best of luck with the new book and hopefully it will go well for you appreciate it thank you thank you the next speaker for the global politics conference was dr neil quilliam his experiences include serving as the senior mena middle east and north africa advisor for the foreign and commonwealth office and eight years working with chatham house an international affairs think tank including his current post as associate fellow in the mena program his talk covered topics in this area with the focus being on global governance, the quality of peace after negotiated settlements, and the degree to which violence and its threat continues to shape peace long after ceasefires. When we, when we sort of look at the Middle East, um, and we look at some of these kind of key, key moments where you've had peace treaties signed, say, between Egypt and Israel in 79, you had the Declaration of Principles between the PLO and Israel in 1993, we had the Jordan Peace Treaty in 1994. We questioned always um, 
how durable, how sustainable are these treaties? And it's something that sort of sits with us now, which is a little strange if you think a peace treaty's been in place for 30 years. Why would we question the durability of that? Why would we suddenly say, this is a risk? It doesn't actually make sense if you think about it. 30 years have passed, generations have passed. So why is it we think about that? Um, I'm just about to publish a paper next week looking at the Israeli-Emirati uh, relationship. And that's, you know, that's, that's a fairly new relationship. And that partnership, we'll call it, has normal, normalized within the space of two years, nearly three years. Unbelievably. But whenever there's, you know, whenever there's an altercation or there's a conflict between Israel and the Palestinians in Gaza, immediately jump. Is this relationship an unusual? And I think that's something we need to really sort of be thinking about today. Anyway, just a few words on, on call it MENA, Middle East, North Africa region. Um, not to sort of continue on that theme of doom and gloom, but in conflict and competition is a feature of the state system in the region. Um, to a large extent, it's condition of great power competition. Um, I mean, you'll be aware that you know, in the last week, last 10 days, you know, the Saudis and the Iranians have come to some kind of rapprochement. They've had a long-running feud. And lo and behold, it's the Chinese that have brokered that. This is a sort of major development for the region. But this is about the great power competition. I'm going to go back in a little bit thinking about the unipolar moment after Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, moving to sort of bipolar to unipolar to what we're looking at as multipolar. And I'm sure all these terms are very, very familiar with you now. But if one thinks about the, the region, um, you've had, you had the Iran-Iraq war between 80 to 88. You've had the Arab-Israeli conflict. You've had a series of wars there involving many of the Arab states in Israel from 48, 67, 73. We've had continuation of that conflict in 78. We've had the Israeli invasion of um, Lebanon in 82. After his talk, Dr. Neil Quilliam spoke to Paul Dunn. So I'm speaking with our second speaker this morning from the Global Politics Conference, Dr. Neil Quilliam from Chatham House, who is an expert on global governance and associate fellow of Chatham House as well, looking at energy economics and the implementation of peace treaties in the Middle East. Would that be a fair... Yes, yeah, that's a, a fair description. I was, as an Irishman, was fascinated by your chat about peace treaties. It's the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and, and the imperfections of peace treaties in general. And in particular, looking at the Jordanian-Israeli uh, treaty that you were speaking about. Is there is an imperfect peace treaty better than no peace treaty? If it leads to the, I guess, the absence of conflict or the absence of war, yes, absolutely. But what it, what it does mean is that, you know, there are underlying issues that need to be addressed and they can't simply be swept under the carpet because they are going to reappear at some point. Um, if there are sort of sec- sections of society that are, feel marginalised, excluded, not included, or their issues are addressed, th- those are going to percolate and you don't know when they're going to come. A shift in the global or regional environment or even domestic environment can lead for those sort of frustrations to come back. And do you see what what kind of issues do you see in the current kind of Middle East um, scenarios that we see? I mean, is there a way? Are we going to be able to find a way for a peaceful solution in Syria, for example? What because those issues seem intractable in many senses. They they are intractable. Or they look they look to be intractable because you've got you know it's they're. There are great power interests involved. There are regional players involved. And, you know, the domestic situation is very fractious. So combination of those three things makes life very, very difficult for those who are trying to broker some kind of peace or, or even, even sustainable ceasefires. But a shift in, in, say, in the regional configuration of power or in the global configuration of power can lead to circumstances where things can be moved. So, for example, this current rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Iran could be a moment in which some of their interests, which are you know, being represented in Syria, could be sort of scaled back or better managed 
Um, Saudi Arabia's relationship with 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 Russia is is an interesting one. The Saudis have you know played quite an instrumental role in getting. Brits and, and, and American hostages released from Russia. So with with Saudi and Iran coming together with those relationships with Russia, there's a possibility that there could be a shift or some, some kind of movement. Um, it, there's a long way to go and it's not going to stop the conflict. But, you know, there's, there, there are sort of moments for, for optimism. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. You, you mentioned kind of the US having less influence in the region than it previously did. Do you think we'll ever see, as you described it, a US moment again in the region? Because it doesn't look like that. And, and, and the current uh, kind of relationships that you're discussing are really facilitated by the lack of American interest in that region. No, absolutely. I mean, not, not to make it too simplistic, but a lot of what we're seeing at the moment is part consequence of the US, you know, shifting its focus to Asia Pacific and not really paying attention or or saying, you know, we've been involved in these wars or these conflicts for the past well actually we've been engaged since, you know, the fifties or whatever. You know, it's we no longer have that capacity or will to do that because it no longer serves our national, you know, our national interest. I mean in a way, so that sort of created this little vacuum in which other other players have come in and started to to flex the moment. I don't think it's going to have another moment, the US, um, but what it's trying to do is trying to sort of outsource some of that kind of security that, that it's provided in the past. And it actively encouraged you know, Israel and the UAE to develop that relationship. Um, and what, what we're seeing now is almost some of the Arab states and Israel's coming together in a sort of a loose security alliance. And it's almost as though the US is funding and supporting that and encouraging that so it can say right you guys you manage that regional security space we'll we'll lend all our support but we, we're thinking about china at the moment and that it's a, it's a sort of an outsourcing yeah it, it, it um again tim marshall in our first speech talked about that focus on china which was really really interesting do you think the future of the middle east is going to be middle east led i mean the big powers and, and, and there won't be any kind of external influence there or if there is an external influence and it's not the u.s who will it be i mean i think there will be there will be you know big power influence and that's likely to be china actually india is another one but I would probably say you telescope that out to about 30, 40, 50 years. In the meantime, the regional, you know, the regional states, I think it was, it was Obama who you know, talked about burden sharing. He, you know, he talked about the states kind of stepping up. And I think that's, that's what we're seeing. You know, we're seeing the Saudi Arabia's really sort of yeah. moving into that space at the moment. We're seeing the smaller powers like the Emirates or the Qataris, you know, working in the kind of media space. They're, they're, I think, yes, the, re- the region's going to probably take greater responsibility for its own security going forward. The US kind of wants to shepherd that as best as it can because it wants its interests, you know, to be, to be observed. But... You know, nothing in global politics is is permanent. Things shift and change all the time. And I would say, you know, I'm sure China's going to arrive in some capacity. I mean, it's already sort of arriving economically, but quite possibly in the next 50 years. But India is also the one to watch. We we tend to ignore India or forget India. But, you know, it's a very close neighbor to the Middle East. And there's a strong connectivity there, especially on the energy front, especially on the tech and a burgeoning defence industry. So that's probably the one that's going to be the, the big influential player in the region. Great. And there's an awful lot to think about there and an awful lot to digest. But uh, Dr. William, thank you so much for coming in today. Really appreciate it. It's really, really fascinating. And uh, I know our students will get a lot from it. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Enjoyed the opportunity. Thank you. The third speaker on the agenda was Professor Carl Heenahan. He currently serves as Professor of Evidence-Based Medicine and is the director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford. He currently chairs WHO guidelines on self-care and cardiovascular disease risk and was involved in government talks surrounding lockdown procedures and COVID-19 mitigation. For this conference, he spoke to students about vaccine collaboration and how to create influence and impact using an evidence-based approach. Well, I'm not interested in that. I'm more interested in the quality of your questions. Are you the sort of person that can go into the world and ask questions about the decisions or what's happening out there? Are you the sort of person when actually you're seeing policies enacted, you're prepared to healthcare to question them? And deliberately, there are many more questions than what we can do applying practice. There's a real drop-off. So we ask many clinical questions, 
We acquire the best evidence, we appraise the quality of the evidence and apply only a small amount in, evidence, in, in practice. Most of the questions we have get filtered out because of poor quality evidence. Now, think about questions. Anybody, have you ever thought about the type of questions that you put forward in the world? A strategy, okay? Most of what you're doing right now is about general questions, trying to fill your brains with knowledge. You know, all of that stuff about the countries, filling knowledge. And all of them are background questions or general knowledge about conditions. And if you look at COVID, you could have loads of these questions. What are the risk factors for COVID? What are the treatment? What are the tests? What are the complications? What about me as an 18-year-old compared to my grandma? And you can have a strategy for general questions. If I asked you, if I asked you about general knowledge, where would you go to look for general knowledge questions? Where would you go and answer what, on the web? Where would you go and look? What would you be favourite resource? Google. Okay. Anybody else have any other resources they use beyond Google? Is that it at Wellington College? What's that? Chat GPT. Chat GPT. Oh wow. So now you have something really interesting. Can I write, write an essay about evidence-based medicine by the afternoon with chat GPT? What about Wikipedia? How many people use Wikipedia? Okay. Yeah. Well, I use Wikipedia. Actually, there are lots of errors in Wikipedia, but I use it quite a bit. I use it for general questions and general knowledge about a condition. When I want to know something, remember, there are about 11,000 healthcare conditions. I can't know everything. However, the second type of questions is specific questions about actual patient care decisions and actions. And this is exactly what happens the same in politics. You have to have a strategy for I'm about to make a decision. I might be making a decision about should I take this treatment as prescribed or not. Now, here's the acronym we use, a very clear acronym, which is called the PICO. Population, Intervention, Comparator and Outcome. After his talk, Professor Carl Heenahan spoke to Paul Dunn. I'm really excited to be speaking to um, Professor Carl Heenahan from the uh, Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford. Um, and Professor Heenahan spoke really eloquently this morning on the ideas of you know, making sure that evidence-based inquiry um, is the most, one of the most important things that we're trying to get across to our students here, and certainly in global politics as well. So uh, we were discussing just before we started recording mm -hmm. about um, the idea of critical thinking and how important that is, in particular for people who are interested in Oxbridge or going to Oxford or Cambridge. And it was one of the things that we talk about a lot. So if you could just... You know, repeat basically what you just said to me over yeah. there, essentially. Yeah. It's interesting. You're, you're, you're obviously, at your Irish background, you say my name correctly because you're <laughs> from an Irish. In, in England, everybody says Hennigan, they forget their H's. But look, this is, I, I mean, I turned up at Oxford 30 years ago to do my undergraduate education. And I have to say, one of the key issues is, is this ability to think critically, is what's ingrained in sort of the structure and strategy when you go to places like Oxford. They want you to ask questions, not blindly accept answers. And I think if you were to go for interview, this is key. You know, content can always be filled up. You, in fact, these days you can just look on the internet for more content. But interestingly, what, how and, and why do you ask questions about the world about you? And in politics, this is incredibly interesting because we face new policies all the time. Whether you look at the environment, what are we going to do about the climate, emergency? But I'm really interested in issues like in the environment, like what about the pollution, all of these issues. We're interested in cold homes and warm homes. What impact do they have on health? And it's about asking questions, not blindly sitting there and, and, and asking and accepting the answers. And interestingly, we do this thing in healthcare. When I teach my students, I say, actually, you should go and look up the answer because there's a chance by the end of the day there's been new evidence that might have emerged that might counter my position. So one of the key things is continually keeping up to date. And in keeping up to date, it's impossible to keep yourself abreast of all the knowledge. So we, we, we talk about two strategies. We call it push and pull. 
pushes maybe those things you read on a regular basis. So I might read the British Medical Journal and I read it because it's interesting. But my major strategy is Paul, knowing how to ask questions and how to search for the right evidence and appraise the quality of that evidence and pull it as questions arise. And doing that really efficiently. And you can only do it efficiently if you practice, you do it a lot. So what I see is in practice, lots of questions arising. I keep a note of them and then actually go and search for the answers and think about how does this change what I'm doing next. And you can apply similar strategies in politics. What is your push? What do you read that keeps you up to date? Maybe the newspaper, maybe the BBC, there's a politics session. You read that on a daily... But when you have a question... For instance, what's the most effective policy to reduce smoking? Then you need to learn how to pull that answer to you and understand whether this is high-quality evidence and will make a difference. And do you think there's a dearth of high-quality evidence in policymaking in general, or is it, it is, is it just something that has become less developed? It seems to me that less curiosity has led to less interest in alternative answers, if that makes sense. Well, I think we all have strong opinions about what to do next. And it's really interesting. Policy only exists when there's a sort of debate or difference about what the policy should be. If we all agree, there's no need for politics. So actually, politics is defined by the ability to be an opposition to what the decision is made. The, The job of evidence is to inform and reduce the uncertainties about the decisions we make. Uh, However, even when making decisions, there are still significant uncertainties. There are only very few times in healthcare where we have what we call the magic bullet, like antibiotics were a great, great sort of intervention that changed the course of, of healthcare. Vaccines were a magic bullet for things like polio. But actually things like what should we do in terms of reducing cardiovascular disease is a government policy about what should we do next. How do we structure our health system to prevent disease occurring? Well, actually, you can waste a lot of money really quickly. But I think what's interesting is that actually politicians are starting to come to the notion of an evidence-based approach, and it's starting to pervade many areas of government. So as I've said, the policing have had strategies. So, for instance, when they have large crowds, they've done randomised trials to work out what's the best way to reduce the aggregate, segregate them, think of things like kettling as a policy. That actually can be testable. The schools had the Educational Endowment Foundation. There was a real problem in schools to say we keep putting money in and we're not actually seeing any attainment gap reduced. Therefore, somebody said, well, how are we going to go about this? Let's have an evidence-based approach. In fact, it was Michael Gove who funded over £200 million worth of trials to try and say what can be done to make a difference. So, and I think what's interesting is, is... In politics, the cake's only so big in terms of how much money you have at any one point. So you have decisions to be made. The question is where you're going to spend your money to to get the most bang for your buck, the impact. And in doing so, you really have to have an effective policy. And we live in a world where some of the problems are growing and increasing. We have an increasing population globally. We have an ageing population who can win more comorbidities, more healthcare problems. You have environmental disasters and particularly the fluctuations in the environment are huge. So we are interested is how much impact does 40 degrees C temperatures have on, on elderly morbidity. But what about the cold, the damp, the mould? You've seen the mould as a big impact. And all of these fit to healthcare issues. And I think one thing I've learned is we do make big changes in policy when it has a big impact in health. So if you think of the Grenfell Tower, lots of people died. It was very visual, and therefore it's going to change policy going forward. If everybody had got out, nobody had died, then it would have probably been brushed over and said, everything's okay, let's move on. So healthcare has a profound impact on changing policies. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you only have to look at France and trying to increase the pension age and the knock-on effects that that might have for healthcare and and for the people that are actually living, how long people live after retirement, for example, and that kind of things that are really, really interesting. But I I want to come back to something that you mentioned in your speech about certainty, because I think that's a a major issue for us as politics students that are interested in this idea of the certainty of policy. And I think as you you have certain governments that may be slightly more right-wing or slightly more autocratic in their nature, 
future. There tends to be an increase in the amount of certainty around the policy that's, that is implemented. And actually, certainty is the enemy of good policy to a certain extent. So, so where, you know, where do you stand on like, this idea of being certain of how things work? So I think, I think there's something really interesting. For those who want to be politicians, there's a real sort of tension. To get into politics, you have to have policies where you're certain about them making a difference in the world. And you have to shout about them and make a name for yourself and be the person who says, I'm going to solve childhood poverty, I'm going to solve the education attainment gap. I'm going to solve all of these healthcare problems. So you're certain. The problem is when you get elected, and this is what happens to politicians, many of them I work with, realise the very, the very skills that got you there in the first place are not the skills you need when you get to the job. And so then they understand the uncertainty. And so there's something interesting. I work with a lot of what's called all parliamentary party groups, APPGs, and I'm an advisor to about three. And they're very interesting. So although you see in the front end of this very opposition shouting, across the house of the floor. In reality, these people are in the background are working together in APPGs to try and solve some of these big issues. And then you find actually they understand the uncertainty and reflect it much better. But I think in the front house of the media, they have to be certain because actually anybody who seems to be uncertain will seem to be weak and the electorate might not vote for them. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, that is, that is really the key, isn't it? To be yeah. able to look past that idea of certainty and policy introduction mm. to the fact that all those policies are made using compromise mm. and, and, and debate. I mean, we, I, I could literally talk to you all day about yeah. this, but uh, we'll have to leave it there. But it's a really, real pleasure for me to, to speak to you. And thanks very much for coming in. And I hope our students have learned an awful lot from you today. So thanks for You're welcome. Much. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Bye-bye. At this point in the event, we heard from Dr Vlad Mikhanenko on the Russia-Ukraine conflict. His Q&A session and follow-up interview are available as a standalone podcast on the Jukebox website. The final speaker for the Conference on Contemporary Challenges in Global Politics was Anna Romero, Head of Sustainability at Wellington College. She was appointed to the position in 2016 and is guiding the college towards its environmental targets, such as carbon neutrality by 2030. As a frequent contributor to COP events around the world, it was fitting that her talk surrounded sustainable development and how climate action in education can continue after COP26, with climate becoming ever more important in the world of politics. She spoke to Jukebox station manager Lucas Ferguson after the event. I'm joined now by Anna Romero, the Head of Sustainability at Wellington College. Anna, thank you for taking the time to speak to us and thank you for your talk at the Contemporary Challenges in Global Politics Conference. Yeah, no, it was great attending it and thank you for inviting me. That's okay. okay. So at the end of your talk, you gave a few recommendations to the students. Do you mind just giving us a recap of what those recommendations were? Yes, absolutely. Well, basically, um, the recommendations were focused on climate change education, that it should become a social platform to motivate climate action in an informed way that responds to the needs, realities, cultural contexts of countries, acknowledging their national, regional and local priorities. Um it's important as well to recognize the, the, the platform that international cooperation takes in, in this topic in between countries to practice it, to share good practice about the different activities they do in the field uh, and implementation of successful strategies precisely in uh, climate education. Uh, further collaboration is very important in between governments and civil society. Uh, so these groups can really help to accelerate implementation of the national goals that are a commitment for national governments in the international arena. Uh, a transformative education becomes as well a strong recommendation precisely because it should be oriented in the solution of problems through action learning rather than just highlighting the problems in which we are immersed as a society but not really thinking how can we transform the learning of students to really become actions and solve the problem and the issues. And then obviously education should be a tool to empower children, young people, women, uh, girls, uh, native people, uh, to construct a global society that is under the the idea that they are empowered, they are well informed, and therefore they have the capacity to interact with the national um, uh, policy makers to really form an, an agenda that can really put resilience and adaptation further, as is now required by all these um, high demands of, of on climate. 
Brilliant. I just wanted to ask you a couple of questions about the things you talked about during the event. Uh, one of the things you talked about was SDGs, which are Sustainable Development Goals, and how they're applicable to various different parties, which you broke down into the categories of government, private sector, civil society, and the individual. Uh, obviously, everyone needs to do their part on climate action, but if one or more parties of those breakdowns is failing in their commitment on climate action, then what should be done in that regard? Yes, absolutely. Is This framework has been quite effective and it has been evolving with time and it has shown and proven that we are really working towards the year 2013 in an organised way. It's not perfect, it's true. There has been times in which these different uh, actors have not really communicated and really developed further. And therefore, it has been demonstrated in the SDG report 2020, 2022 that there is a high risk of failure if we see this context in general perspective. However, it's proven as well that in individual actions, the SDGs, are really advancing and really helping. And that's because there has been synergies in, in communication with these actors, as you mentioned. So what should take place is really um, that we require effective multilateralism in this context, where uh, the full participation of all societies is taken on board. And then this global crisis demands that a shared global response is needed. So governments become accountable global um, uh, citizens become global uh, actors to really put those governments accountable in the actions that are required. Uh, civil society is really acting and, and putting its part in really pressuring for these changes uh, to happen. And then institutions that uh, are providing education and other fields really become active and well informed. So not necessarily we'll say that this is a big failure, but we are looking towards the year 2030 in which a whole report of activities will be shown if we have been successful or failing with these models. Uh, but I truly believe that the data that is provided at least now with the SDG report 2022 is really showing us the data that we need to really demonstrate that there has been an advance, uh, but that that's not enough, that we really need to find that multilateralism, multi multilateralism sorry, uh, to really be able to act. Mm. And sort of building a little off that, uh you have had a presence at various COP events, various uh, Conference of the Party events yeah. on climate action. Um, when, when it came to Glasgow for COP26, there was quite a lot of talk in the British media about um, what I very crudely dubbed eco-negative forces, the, the presence of fossil fuel companies uh, and, and the similar people who might look to water down any climate agreements. I wanted to get your thoughts on what the pros and cons were of having a willing agreement with these parties on softer targets versus f trying to force unwilling parties to meet much stricter targets. I wondered if you could sort of break that down a little bit in terms of what the advantages and disadvantages of those two approaches would be. Yeah, yeah. Well, being uh, in that arena, uh, precisely where you see all these actors interacting and really having a go in saying we're, we're trying our best and, and we are really interacting under the big framework that the convention is giving us and the conference of the parties. Unfortunately, there is lots of greenwashing. And, and that's something that is not helping the process, absolutely, because we see many times that industries are first taking their development, no matter what, the environment, against the environment. But I think that has been a long ongoing situation. However, we have other examples that show different actions and that they have been really advancing. And I believe in the negotiations is a platform where you get to see the good practices and the bad, bad practices very clearly, the different parties having their own goals and their own thinkings and, and so on. However, what I would like to mention is that what we have nowadays is the Paris Agreement that came and substituted the Kyoto uh, Protocol. And basically, that's what we have. That's at the core element that is putting 197 governments of the world 
to act on climate change. Therefore, there are pros and cons. And I would say that for some countries, there are more cons than pros. Uh, and basically because they cannot advance in their development as they wish they could do, and therefore they are taking it slightly. Um, so the, the truth is that the Paris Agreement uh, is not a legally binding document. However, if a signatory ratifies the treaty, it officially agrees uh, uh, to hold itself responsible to meet its targets and incorporate it into national laws. Uh, as for, for example, in 2018, uh, 13 signatories had not ratified the Paris Agreement. Um, countries like Angola, Eritrea, Iran, Iraq, Kazakhstan, Lebanon, Libya, Oman, Russia, South Sudan, Suriname, Turkey and Yemen. So if we are looking at this context, um, I would say that in short, the Paris Agreement might look like a bad deal to some, uh, but represents significant progress on getting the world to agree to take climate action. And I believe that's the best benefit because we have different strands of, of negotiation in which, yes, it's difficult, it's really complex process, is really stuck in some areas like finance is one of the biggest challenge uh, challenges that is confronting and it's something that we get to see, let's say, uh, COP after COP after COP and now come COP28 is coming in Dubai and we probably still have the same topics over and over. However, these others that they have been advancing and the recognition of human rights, for example, for action for climate empowerment is something extremely important because he's giving voice to everyone to act. Um, and now we, we acknowledge, for example, loss and poverty, uh, loss, I'm sorry, loss and damage. That big topic is something that is now unavoidable because the effects of climate change are happening. We will, governments will need money for this kind of, of situations. So we cannot, or governments, can, governments cannot close their eyes to say it doesn't exist. We don't need to put money. So adaptation is recognized that is nowadays one of the topics that is really important because mitigation was in the past, but now we have overpassed that and we need to adapt to what is coming. So if, if we get to think of all these topics being so complex, the pros of having a document that is giving us a clear track where to go is helping. Probably the con will be that it's not going as fast as we need for the climate emergency that we are confronting. But at least we're reaching an agreement that is in the national policies of countries and that they are giving the pattern of action for industries, for uh, civil society, for different institutions that are really part of the economies of the world to really look forward to something that is really acceptable and is helping their societies. As an example, um, Scandinavia is, is a very good example of good practice of how they have really taken sustainable development as a core element to advance in harmony with nature, for example. So these kind of examples, I think, uh, are very helpful, in, especially in industries and thinking in finance and economy and how the world moves in that sense. So I would say the price agreement in, in that sense is a true practice of multilateralism for, for like liaising with the previous uh, question you asked me. And then we have this uh, non-legally Biden treaty that represents that that progress that is not as fast as we need, but is something that is helping us. And a lot of this talk has been sort of about climate change as a big thing on a governmental, on an industry scale. Bringing it down to an individual level, we're living in a world where for many people the cost of living is a huge issue where there is growing financial inequality, both in our country and throughout the world. In those contexts, should we expect people, and especially the people who are worst off in society, to take actions to disadvantage themselves for very minuscule eco-gains in the grand scheme of things? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a very strong advocate of um, citizens being well-informed to be able to participate in the life uh, of countries in the sense of being in the life of decision-making and making governments accountable for what they do. Uh, in that sense, 
once citizens are informed, and I'm talking again from young people to elderly, from women to uh, people in disadvantage and so on, then the actions they can develop can be very meaningful. Individual actions for climate change has been proven to show effects in the positive way to really tackle the problem. And we know as well that if citizens are informed, then they can really pressure or make a pressure in industries that are not really ethical in their actions, for example. The truth is that at the moment, um, the World Bank is telling us in its last report that uh, an additional 68 to 135 million people could be pushed into poverty by 2030. And 2030 is, is when we are looking into the climate policy. 2050 is as well uh, another important year because it seems that everything finishes there. And, and all of that is because of climate change. And we know that uh, developing countries or uh, countries in poverty are the ones that are really going to be experiencing the worst effects of climate change. Um, so the different directions in which the future economic damages are happening uh, is showing that it's true that climate change uh, will be a big issue for all these countries. Um, I wouldn't really estimate the actions that individuals can take uh, to really push forward the changes, but is definitely, there is no doubt that the big policies play a big game in this. And um, I would say that we as citizens, uh, we can really um, participate and put in action our climate diplomacy as citizens and really make uh, through different actions. And therefore, we have civil society for that, which they many times get to have a great job asking governments that they have to fulfill the agreements they have, for example, in the international arena or the policies they are putting forward, they are not enough and they are pressing for that. So I would say citizens, we have a big role to play and probably we may be in in this big chain of actions uh, looked at minimal but the truth is that it can have a very big impact if we are keen in participating being well informed being linked with all of these organizations that are really taking action to push the things forward brilliant anna romero yeah. head of sustainability at wellington college thank you very much thank you after some closing remarks from Dr Anthony Coates, the students left Great School to ponder what they had heard and how it affected their study of politics. It was a great event and the college looks forward to the next politics conference. On behalf of Wellington College, I'd like to thank Dr Anthony Coates and Anna Romero for taking time out of their college schedules to be part of the conference, as well as all of the guest speakers, Tim Marshall, Dr Neil Quilliam, Professor Carl Heenahan and Dr Vlad Mikonenko. I'd also like to thank Paul Dunn for his time interviewing the guest speakers and Tala Woolhouse for her efforts behind the scenes setting everything up and liaising with schools and speakers so that the event could be a success.